Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible, turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, uh, you will find that on page 802. We have come this morning to the end of our study through Malachi, and as always, I hope that it has been helpful and challenging for you, uh, as we have seen through this series that God is after our hearts. Uh, in a number of different ways, Malachi has made it clear that God is not interested in us simply going through the motions spiritually, that God seeks uh, his people to have a genuine love for him that's expressed in authentic faithfulness. And as we finish Malachi this morning, we're going to be reminded of this one last time as we're directed to put our hope in God's promised future day of salvation through judgment. And so we're in Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to pick up uh, beginning in verse 13. Malachi says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You've said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so as we pick up here in verse 13, Malachi begins his sixth and final disputation as he confronts the people about the ways that they have been speaking about God. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But Malachi says that the, the words of the people have been hard against the Lord. Uh, he means that they've been harsh He's saying that the, the people have been using strong language that mischaracterizes who God is and how he is at work in the world. And of course, as they've done the entire prophecy, the people protest against this accusation. They ask, how have we spoken against you? So Malachi tells them in verse 14, he says, you've said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And so based on their situation, the people have come to the conclusion that there is no benefit in being among God's people. Uh, no, there's no benefit in serving him with their lives. They consider it to be vain or pointless. Now this is similar to the complaint that the people had back in chapter 2 concerning God's commitment to justice in the world, but here the, the issue has more to do with the practical benefits of following the Lord. We see the, the end result of their thought process in verse 15, when the people admit, now we, can, we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so the people have come to the point where, where they consider those who reject God to, to be the greatest beneficiaries of his grace and his blessings. Right? They, they look around and they see that, that their crops aren't growing, their families are barely getting by, but they, they look around and the godless Persian empire seems to be doing very well. 
They, they ask themselves, what, if this is the case, what's the point of following the Lord? These people test God. They do things that they know they shouldn't do, and that God has promised to judge, and yet God doesn't seem to do anything about it. It seems like we'd be better off joining the pagans. And of course, the whole point of this prophecy has been that the people aren't genuinely following the Lord, and the Lord is desperately trying to get their attention. But despite the ongoing lack of self-awareness in general, beginning in verse 16, we actually see the response of some of those who heard Malachi's words and took them to heart. And so we'll pick up again beginning in verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so starting in verse 16, we come to an interesting break in the action. As Malachi has confronted the people about their spiritual apathy, their unrepentant sin against him, we see here that a portion of the people responded. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And as we've seen before in the past, to fear the Lord means to respect God for who he is and act accordingly. It doesn't mean specifically to be afraid of him in the, the typical sense that we use it today. Right? The fearing the Lord is the way the Old Testament describes the proper heart attitude for worshipers of God. Now, whether these particular people were already a faithful minority among the Israelites, or whether these are people who have heard Malachi's message and come to a place of repentance, is not clear. But in light of God's word, this group of people comes together and they have a discussion. And the implication seems to be that, that they are in agreement that what Malachi has been saying is true. And we also see uh, in the second half of the verse that the Lord paid attention and heard them. And so while God has been listening to all of the griping and complaining that's been going on among his people, here we see that he also hears the godly conversation of those who receive his word. And there seems to be a, an implied understanding of his approval of these people. And then at the end of verse 16, we see that a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, nobody knows for sure what book this is referring to, but there are three main possibilities. Uh, of course, we know in several places the Bible mentions the book of life, uh, where the names of God's people who will be saved on the day of judgment are recorded and kept in heaven, and it's, this could be a reference to that. More likely, this could be a book with all of the names of those who renewed their commitment to the Lord in this particular circumstance. We saw something similar to that in Nehemiah chapter 10, as the people renewed the covenant under Nehemiah's leadership. Uh, and so this could be similar to that, or it could be that book, depending on how you put together the timing of Nehemiah and Malachi's ministries. It's also possible uh, that the prepositional phrase of those who fear the Lord should be translated for those who fear the Lord. 
And, and in that case, this book would be referring to the final collection and ordering of the minor prophets as a whole, the, the books of Hosea through Malachi in the Old Testament. Uh, you see, from a Jewish perspective, the minor prophets are considered one big book. And so this could be a reference to that development as a record of God's word for those who fear him and wish to follow him. But whatever the identity of the book is, the Lord declares here that those who fear him and who esteem his name will be the recipients of his grace. In verse 17, he says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And so this is the beginning of another section that is going to detail the coming day of judgment. And here the Lord makes it clear that when that day comes, those who fear him will belong to him. And he even describes them as being his treasured possession. And he promises that he will spare them from judgment as a father spares his son, as, as a father who has compassion on his son and hesitates to punish him. And we're going to come back to that phrase again later. But in verse 18, he makes it clear, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. In other words, he tells them, you may not feel like there's any advantage to being among God's people right now, but when that day comes, you will then. You, you will see the distinction between those who belong to God and those who don't. And this is going to be made all the more clear as Malachi goes on to describe what this day of judgment will be like as we move into chapter 4. And so we'll pick up one last time in chapter 4. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So as we move into chapter 4, the Lord assures his people that despite the way things are right now, it won't always be this way. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. And in fairly graphic terms, the Lord expounds on what this day of judgment will be like. And when the, those who are wicked and persist in rebellion against him and oppress his people are brought to account. Right, the imagery of, of fire that completely consumes is used to portray the utter and total punishment that, that God's enemies will receive. And on that day, all of the money, all of the fame, all of the, the pleasure in the world that these people have envied in others will amount to nothing at all. It will be completely useless. At the end of verse 1, we see that the judgment will leave the wicked neither root nor branch. 
And so if a, if a tree or a plant gets cut down, it's, it's possible for it to actually regrow again as long as the roots are in place. And if you've ever had to weed a garden, then you know that from experience because they just keep coming back again. But when the final judgment comes, the Lord is clear that it will be complete. There will be no roots, no branches left for the wicked to come back ever again. The Lord is going to cleanse the earth of the presence and power of sin once and for all. On the other hand, for God's people, the day of judgment is going to be a day of great blessing as the Lord delivers them from all of the pain and suffering that sin has inflicted on this world. He says in verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And so the last day will be a source of blessing for God's people as the effects of sin are removed, and as all of the pain and suffering that have characterized this life are healed forever. And the response of God's people at that time is pictured in the second half of the verse. It says, You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I recognize that the, the imagery of calves leaping may be lost on most of us in the modern world, but if you've ever been on a farm or a ranch, then you may have seen the way that calves run around. They just jump and and, you know, without being able to get inside their heads or ask them what they're thinking, it just comes across very happy-go-lucky, right? It just, hello world, it's great to be alive. And, and, and God uses that picture uh, to describe what the day of judgment will be like for his people. It illustrates the joy that they will have when they've been delivered from all of the stress and suffering in this world forever. Finally, the Lord describes the day of judgment by revealing that his people will share in the victory over their enemies. In verse 3, he says, You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And so there's going to be a, a great reversal on the day of judgment. All of the enemies that have oppressed God's people throughout the centuries are, are going to become uh, stubble and ash that the, God, the people of God walk upon and trample over. When, when God acts in judgment. And so we see that a time of reckoning is coming when God's people will be rewarded and God's enemies will be dealt with. And in verse 4, the Lord gives his people instructions as they wait for this day to arrive. He says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Now in the Bible, the word remember almost always carries connotations of action to it. Right? To remember something is to do something in light of remembering. And so the, the point is not for the people to say, oh yeah, I remember when God gave the law to Moses. See, I remember the law. No, he's saying, I want you to begin following the law again. Follow the, the covenant that I have established with you until the day of salvation comes. And so this is a call for the people to return to faithfulness. And if the people believe God's word, then that, that faith will be demonstrated and expressed by them following the law once again and returning to covenant faithfulness. And then finally, at the end of the passage, the Lord makes a, a final promise. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. As this is directly tied to the promise that the Lord would send a messenger back at the end of chapter 2 who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And here we get an additional detail that the messenger will be Elijah. 
who actually lived and served about 400 years prior to this. Now that seems confusing, and that's because this promise is, is what we call a typology. And so typology refers to the fact that what God does in the past serves as a pattern or a type for what he's going to do again in the future. And we see types throughout the Old Testament that find fulfillment in the New Testament. And so the point is not that God is going to raise Elijah from the dead and send him back to the people. It means he's going to send someone who is very much like Elijah. We know from, from the Old Testament that Elijah was a prophet who was sent to confront God's people in a time of, of great spiritual apathy and, and unrepentant sin, much like things were in Malachi's day. And so someone like Elijah was needed once again to prepare the people for the coming day of judgment. And as we'll see more as we get into Luke in the next couple of weeks, uh, this is pointing ultimately to John the Baptist. Uh, in John, we have someone who dresses like Elijah. He acts like Elijah. People recognize him as Elijah. But we'll get to that uh, in a few weeks. But for the original audience, part of the role of this Elijah figure will be that he turns the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That's kind of an odd statement because there's been nothing in this prophecy so far that has hinted at any problems within family units or anything like that. And really, this is, is an obscure phrase that most interpreters understand to be a reference to the conversion of both young people and old people, fathers and children, uh, through the ministry of this coming prophet. And I know that probably sounds confusing, but it's just an instance where the language does not come across and transfer into our language very well. But the Lord makes it clear in the last sentence that this conversion of all the people is necessary, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And this refers again to complete and total destruction of all who will reject the ministry of this prophet and persist in rebellion against God. And this call to faithfulness in light of the coming day of salvation through judgment is the end of the book of Malachi. And so in our passage this morning, we finish reading what were the final words that were given to God's people during the Old Testament period. And from this point on, there were 400 years of silence and waiting until one day an angel appeared in the temple to a priest named Zechariah and announced the fulfillment of this prophecy, which again, we'll get into more in a couple of weeks. But as we consider the application of this last passage of Malachi to our lives today, we would probably all have to admit that most all of us have been here at some point in time in our lives, where, where we feel like God isn't necessarily holding up his end of the bargain. We all have a natural tendency to think that, that if we love God, and if God loves us, then life should be relatively smooth. Right? The good guys should be blessed, the bad guys should be cursed. And at times, this mindset has even worked its way into our approach to evangelism. So maybe you've said or you've heard someone else say that, that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's certainly true, but it's not necessarily true in the way that we naturally think it to be true. Right? We are certainly, as God's people, the recipient of innumerable blessings in this life. But the reality is that we also continue to endure hardship and suffering. And the problem is that when our expectations don't match reality, 
it can be disorienting for us. In fact, some people become embittered towards God in the face of suffering and completely abandon their faith. Malachi reminds us this morning that as God's people, our ultimate reward, our ultimate blessings don't come in this life. They will come in eternity. As I was studying this week, I was reminded of Psalm 73, where Asaph works through this very struggle in his own life. And you should look it up uh, later sometime. But he talks about this season of his life where, where things were just overwhelmingly difficult. And yet, in the midst of his suffering, as he looked around, he couldn't help but notice how those who rejected God seemed to be relatively happy and healthy and at ease in life. And, and in his heart, he, he almost slipped into unbelief, he says. But then he remembered the big picture. That in the end, God makes all things right for his people. He puts his enemies down, and he heals and rewards his people. And in the big picture, the joys of eternity will make the sufferings of this life look like nothing more than a blip on the screen. And that's the hope of Malachi, that God will eventually make things right for his people. The sorrows of this life will be healed, and because of that, we can be faithful to the Lord as we wait for that day. Of course, as we've been seeing throughout this series, we today, as the church, have the benefit of theological hindsight. Right? What the people of, of Malachi's day had to look forward to, we have received in fullness through the person and ministry of Jesus. And so you may ask, how is all of this going to work? Right? How, how, how could these sinful Israelites possibly avoid the judgment of a righteous God? How can God's people remain faithful in the midst of suffering? I'd never picked up on it before, but as I read it this week, it hit me like a hammer. You see, the reason God's people can be spared, as a man spares his son, as we saw in verse 17, is because God did not spare his son. The reason that God's people can know that he loves them and that he is committed to their good is because God did not spare his own son. You see, salvation has come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God has demonstrated his love for his people, his unfailing, steadfast love through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul makes this clear in, in chapter 8 of his letter to the Romans, a man who is familiar with suffering, writing to a group of believers who were experiencing intense persecution and other hardships, says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, God can spare us from judgment because he caused his judgment to fall on his son, who came as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin so that we can be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to him by placing all of our faith in him and what he has done for us. God not sparing his own son is the ultimate proof that he loves us. And because of that, we can always look back to the cross, know that God loves us, and we can trust that in time he will make all things right again. If God was willing to do that, then he will not ultimately hold anything else back from us, and he will finish what he started. 
Church, this world is not our home. And by God's grace, this life is not as good as it gets, despite what prosperity teachers might try to tell us. This is not an opportunity for our best life now. But through faith in Jesus, we have a hope that is bright beyond our ability to even begin comprehending. So as we finish Malachi this morning, may we be among those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And may we remain faithful as we put our hope in his promised future day of salvation through judgment. Let's pray together.